Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. After being demonized for decades and hitting a 30-year low in 2019, per capita flour consumption is on the rise again, thanks in part to consumers' increasingly sophisticated understanding of diet and health and their dual desire to fill their plates during the pandemic with food that is both nutritious and comforting. According to data published by the Economic Research Service of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, per capita flour consumption in 2019 fell 2.1 pounds, or 1.5%, to 130.7 pounds, from 132.8 pounds in 2018. This was down a whopping 11% from the most recent high of 146.8 pounds way back in 1997, and it's the lowest point since 1989 when consumption was only 129.1 pounds. According to Christine Cochran, Executive Director of the Grain Foods Foundation, consumer views and consumption of flour and other grains have reversed course during the pandemic, a trend that she predicts will continue going forward. In this, in this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, Cochran explains what's behind the ups and downs of flour and grain consumption in the U.S., how the pandemic is reshaping consumers' approach to and perception of grains, where there's white space for innovation, and how the Grain Foods Foundation will continue to build on this positive momentum going forward. So for decades, grains and carbs have been demonized as contributing to weight gain or at a minimum slowing weight loss effects. But Cochran explains that as the pandemic pushed many consumers to reconsider the role of diet and wellness, they began to take a more balanced, holistic approach to nutrition, which opened the door for grains to play a more prominent role in a healthy lifestyle. We've been tracking um, a couple of numbers for decades now, and one of them is um, called the flower disappearance rate on a per capita basis, which sounds very unexciting. Um, but what it tells us is like, where does wheat flour go, um, right? Like, so are people eating more or less? And it, it, is, um, it includes everything, right? Like, so it doesn't necessarily distinguish between whether they're eating it in terms of bread or a tortilla. You know, it's just, where is that wheat flour going on a per capita basis? And what we've seen is over the last decade, that number has been in fairly steady decline. And then when you go and you look at kind of the heart of the category, which is bread sold in grocery stores, like sliced bread in the bread aisle at grocery stores, we've also seen an even more dramatic decline in consumption over, you know, going into 2018, the, the preceding 10 years then. Right, so now we're all, we're approaching the 15-year mark, um, and so we knew as an industry that um, not only were consumers buying less bread in that bread aisle in the grocery store, they were eating less wheat. You know, whether that was eating out or whether that was a tortilla or a bun, it didn't matter. In general, we'd seen per capita consumption of wheat flour decline um, over a number of years. Um, the, the language was often around wheat-free this, paleo that, low-carb this, high glycemic index, you know, 
the language was very anti-carbohydrate. And while that's not new, right, we've had um, peaks of low-carb diet trends that go all the way back to World War II, um, it had reached a volume um, in 2018 and 2019 that was just exceptionally loud. And so um, one of the things, though, that we also saw happening at the same time was a media trend towards covering diets. So um, in 2018, in 2019, you always kicked off the year in January with, you know, a bikini body diet, right? So whether that was Whole30 or a paleo diet or whatever, it was all about the vanity of losing weight. But what we saw quietly happening in those same years, in 18 and in 19, was a trend towards talking about nutrition in the context of wellness, um, and less about just losing some pounds um, and really focusing in on the importance of nutrition across many things besides just weight. And what we saw um, kind of in the pandemic was just that trend really take off. Um, people got really focused in on wellness and understanding um, what that meant and more holistically than just a single food on your plate. Um, and so for us during the pandemic, those two trends sort of reversed course. And so the wellness trend really took off in terms of tonality of conversation about diet and nutrition. And we saw more fad diets start to diminish. They don't go away, right? But the, their trajectory starts to reverse course and, and go down. And when we saw in the wellness conversation was still just a deep commitment to nutrition as a as a pathway for healthfulness, um, but it didn't necessarily disparage individual ingredients on your plate. And understanding that when you sit down to a meal, there's a lot more going on than just simply nutrition, right? It's connecting with those that are around you. It's a feeling of comfort, a feeling of satiety, um, as well as the nutritional components. And so as people really started to dig into this, they started to see grain foods um, as as part of meeting all of those needs. So starting looking at them not just as, you know, a carb, but rather, you know, this is the dish that brings us together at breakfast time or lunch time or snack or dinner, um, and it's the common thread throughout the day um, that, that helps keep everybody together in moments of crisis. We actually commissioned a study to ask consumers about their comfort foods, fully expecting, right, to get responses about, you know, cookies and ice cream and these sorts of things. And we got that. No doubt about it, you know, consumers had a list of comfort foods that were full of, you know, what you would classically think of as comfort foods. But what we also saw on that list was bread and pasta. And then when you asked them to talk about foods that they found nutritious, um, or they would eat for their nutrition. Um, you also found bread and pasta on that list. And what we found really insightful was that those were the only two that made both lists. So um, what we learned was that consumers saw those foods as not just comfort foods but nutritious foods. And in a moment of uncertainty, that was a really um, wonderful place um, to be on people's plate right, because that was exactly what people were looking for. They were looking for comfort, um, but they were also looking for nutrition. Grain-based foods also saw an uptake during the pandemic because they were accessible 
and budget-friendly, which became more important as unemployment skyrocketed and consumers looked for ways to stretch premium ingredients while still meeting dietary needs and feeling full. One of the, the real powers of the food, that food category, grain foods category, is they are very accessible in terms of budget. When you think about a pound of bread or a loaf of bread, right, um, and how you can stretch that, or a pound of pasta, and, um, you know, depending on what you want to buy, it's a very affordable product. And then um, it allows you to do so many things, so it's kind of a creative um, food as well. So if you are looking to stretch a budget or stretch an ingredient, right? So you're mixing your pasta with some ground beef, the ground beef goes a lot further when it's mixed together with that pasta or that rice or served on a bun. And so those are all calculations that we all have to do. Even um, in the food banks, you know, the um, the demand for bread to be partnered with peanut butter, right? But we saw even just the bakers partnering with food banks to make sure that the product was coupled with a protein source or a fruit and vegetable or, you know, like whatever would go with it to make for the most nutritious meals to be distributed. Well, some of the trends that boosted grain consumption in 2020 likely won't survive beyond the pandemic. I'm thinking the sourdough craze or the scratch baking everything every day. Cochran said that the experiences and values consumers gained from those experiences opened their mind to grains in a new way and will influence their grocery carts going forward. The sourdough craze was real, right? Even when you left Instagram, the sourdough craze was real. Um, And people dug into that. So what we saw when you um, step back and really study it is a couple of different things. One was the... It's a moment of uncertainty, and people are looking, right, for something that provides comfort. And as I said before, right, like we know that bread does that in general for people, but to actually make your own bread, to have that sort of control and tactile experience of kneading it and measuring out the ingredients and waiting, um, those are all very satisfying experiences. And I think that was part of the craze. It, it took up some time. It was a new thing for people to learn, right, and a skill to perfect. And then it resulted in this product that's delicious and comforting and nutritious. And um, the other thing that we saw with that was as people were making that sourdough bread, they became much more open, right, to other bread products, whereas maybe in 2019 they weren't, right? It was really easy to demonize a product that you didn't know very well. But once you make a few loaves of bread, you look at bread very differently, and you understand like how simple the ingredients really are, um, the nutrition that is there, and then that kind of creativity that can come with it as well in terms of using the product in the kitchen. I do not believe America is a country of scratch bakers. Um, those days are long gone. However, I do think that the memory of that experience will live for a long time. And so while people might not be making sourdough bread every day or every week moving forward, I think it is something that they're going to continue to do. I think you know, they might think about keeping that flour um, on the shelf for when they want to do it, and now they know how to do it. So maybe you learn to make focaccia, and that's something that you can do with regularity because it's not as hard. Or 
if you're like my family, you really came to love the cast iron skillet pizza, um, you know, and that's really easy. And as a mom, I can make a double or a triple batch of that, pop it in the freezer and pull it out and make homemade pizza for dinner. So that's, um, that has become very much a staple for us. So I think, you know, um, people will adapt, but we've given them another tool in their toolbox to use moving forward, but also a tool that allows them to pre appreciate all of the types of grain foods. Um, so we're talking a lot about bread, but people were also making pasta. Now that requires a little bit more equipment, so it's not as broadly available to folks. But you, you know, gnocchi doesn't take that much, you know, um, to make dumplings. You can make um, with very little equipment. And so we've seen people really start to just, you know, broaden out what they know and what their experiences are. And we're optimistic that that will continue as we move forward, but also optimistic that it will shape their grocery carts for when they stop making as much at home. Supply chain constraints early in the pandemic also prompted some consumers to try unfamiliar and even ancient grains. And as they learned new cooking techniques and recipes to accommodate those, Cochran believes that these ingredients may work their way into some consumers' shopping lists long term. So we have seen ancient grains kind of continue to stay in the spotlight as an alternative. So as um, restaurants stay closed or were at low capacity, people started to really start to open up those cookbooks and figure out some new dishes that they might want to make. So we did see um, that kind of experimentation also happening. In terms of supply chain, however, I would tell you that, and this gets a little bit agroeconomic here, but um, wheat is the most commonly um, consumed grain in the United States by far um, as it relates to our food, second being corn. Um, and so as you start to go down and you talk about you know, other types of grain like teff, for example, um, or even quinoa, the, the levels of consumption are quite low. And so as supply chains got interrupted, they were impacted. Um, but it didn't mean they were out of production or inaccessible. It just became difficult. Um, and so as we start to see these things kind of restock the shelves, the curiosity was there. People were taking them, um, buying them in the store, taking them home, and presumably cooking with them. And what we saw online, at least, was um, a lot of interest in alternative grain recipes, especially if you were craving like the grain bowl at your favorite like fast casual chain that you wanted to recreate at home, um, those sorts of trends. And I think as long as people you know, keep trying, like we're going to continue to see them um, have a role and a place. And I mean, one of the things I always encourage people to do is you know, whole grains are supposed to be half of our grain consumption every day. And so a lot of times these ancient grains, not always, but a lot of times these ancient grains qualify as whole grains. And it's very worthwhile for people to incorporate these into their diets because we know that they aren't getting the whole grains on a daily basis that, they, that is recommended for them. Shifting shopping habits during the pandemic also revealed areas ripe for innovation, including co-marketing or packaging to showcase new and more convenient uses for grains, their role in the plant-based and flexitarian diets, and permissible indulgence. So what I am optimistic about is the innovation that you're going to see coming out of this. And so we know already from this that pairing is really important. 
And so I think what you're going to start to see is more, I hesitate to use the word kits, um, but the idea of like either promoting products in the grocery store that create a meal, right, like of that type, or that kind of co-packaging so it becomes easier for folks. Because one of the trends that we know is going to persist after um, all of the lockdowns are lifted is the convenience at home dynamic. So for all of the people who are still working remotely from home, maybe their employers are talking about bringing them back full time, but more likely than not, it's some sort of a hybrid, method, a hybrid situation where they're going to be expected to work from home a few days a week and come into the office a few days a week. And for that fairly large segment of the population, you know, cooking lunch at home is now going to be a thing. And they're going to want to be able to do it as quickly and as conveniently as possible. And so I think there's an enormous opportunity there in the grain food space to lead that charge in innovation. The plant-based trend has been one that was slowly growing um, over time, and we've really seen it um, accelerate in the last 12 to 18 months. So I also think there's incredible um, interest and therefore innovation um, to play out in that space. And I'm really excited about it. Um, also, as I said earlier, you know, grains are a great carrier of other things, right? So whether that's your fruit, your vegetable, your protein, um, dairy, it's, it's a great way um, to build a plant-based meal. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot to be optimistic about in that space. And one of the spaces where there's been a lot of innovation that I think got discovered in the pandemic was in the baking aisle. And so um, prior to the pandemic, um, sales of mixes were generally down. And so companies were really competing in the innovation space to draw customers down that baking aisle. And so um, with the onset of the pandemic, people doing more grocery shopping, exploring that baking aisle, I think they were really surprised by what they found, right? Like, so whether it's the single serve mixes that you can pop in the microwave or it's the high protein, like blueberry muffin mixes that you can now make, or the variety, right, that's there, you know, from all the different types of quick breads, cornbread, pumpkin bread, cinnamon swirl bread, to, um, you know, the classic cake mixes that have now just gotten so good when you make them. I think um, we've seen that innovation and people um, in the pandemic were buying it like crazy. And as I've mentioned, I have children and they're of that age where baking a mix is really accessible for them. And I love having them in the house. So, you know, we went from being a household with no mixes to a household where at any given moment I probably have four or five. Um, and I have to tell you, um, what we've seen in our house is a, real, a much deeper appreciation for them in terms of the quickness of which you can get things made um, and just the treat that it feels like throughout the day. But also, like, it's, a, it's an easy product to keep on the shelf and have it when you need it. Um, so for me, it's like cornbread now is more a part of our menu planning because I know I can make it really quickly with a mix. And what we saw, so that's my story, but what does it look like in the numbers? We saw the same trend. So we saw mix sales going up. And that innovation that companies had invested in and 2018 and 2019 was really paying off um, as people started doing much more shopping at the grocery store. 
As economies reopen and consumer mobility returns, the Grain Food Foundation is proactively protecting against a backslide in grain consumption by pushing forward a checkoff initiative that would help raise awareness for the industry as a whole through marketing and consumer outreach. So I'm, I'm optimistic that as an industry we're going to step up. We are going to um, market for ourselves, right, as a category and talk about the goodness of grain-based foods. And um, as we always like to say at the foundation, they're the foods that love you back. Um, and really lean into that with our consumer to ensure that we don't go back to where we were um, in 2018 or 2019. So the industry is, is in the process of um, deliberating on a checkoff initiative. So one does not exist. The Grain Food Foundation operates as a voluntary program. We are technically a 501c6, so it's not a checkoff. Um, however, the industry is looking at that, and um, our kind of working title is the Breadbasket Checkoff. And that initiative has been underway since 2018. And so we are working with both industry as well as with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to advance that process. And I think that would be, that would be a tremendous tool for our industry to have, especially at this time. Um, so we have a draft order at USDA that has been generally reviewed and approved. I would say generally. It's not licensed to launch. Um, but our challenge as an industry is building consensus around the program and taking into consideration some of the challenges presented by COVID. So for example, while in general, um, bread and grocery stores have seen positive sales trends over the last year. If you are a baker who is supplying food service or institutional buyers, um, your experience may be very different. And so what we're working through right now is to determine how best to address those issues in a fair and equitable way. So I believe like we will work through those this spring, um, and I'm optimistic that we would submit a you know, final proposal to USDA for their consideration in the summer or fall of 2021. The Grain Food Foundation also is trying to change consumers' negative perceptions of grains by investing in science and research, including a recently published study in the peer-reviewed Current Developments in Nutrition that explores the benefits of refined grains and the risks of excluding grains from the diet. In addition, it's working with food service and retailers to more prominently display grains. There's also a perception problem, right, fueling that units issue. And so what we had hoped to do was using investments in science and research to launch a campaign that would go to the perception challenges that consumers had around our products, but also be tactical, right, and work with restaurants on menu development so that our products had um, – essentially better placement on the menu, right? Like the, the best products are being featured. Um, and also like in the grocery stores, making sure that when it's the bread aisle is being promoted, it's being promoted in a way that we know really resonates with consumers. So for example, when we talked about innovation in terms of like co-marketing products together, we know from our research that that's really, really valuable. We also know that in a grocery store, it's really hard for a single brand to make that happen. And so we believe that 
collectively as an industry, we're better equipped to work with the retailers in that kind of promotion um, under the umbrella of a checkoff than via individual brands. And we also believe that you know, when working with food service, whether that's school meals, um, feeding hospital workers, or your you know, rest, corner restaurant, right? working on that menu development, helping feature certain types of products that we know consumers really enjoy. That's where we as an industry can really thrive, not just in terms of improving sales, but also in terms of improving perception. Through this multi-pronged approach, industry innovation, and deeper consumer understanding of the value of grains, Cochrane says that the grain foods industry can sustain and build on the seeds of consumer interest in grains planted during the pandemic, to ultimately help sales and consumption flourish going forward. With that, we reach the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week. <music>